calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 316. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Women and Aliens Month continues here on the Drabblecast, a celebration of women writers in science fiction. Let's jump in with a Drabble. This week's 100-word story is A Traveler from a Distant Land by Nathan Lee. Nathan Lee, a.k.a. Scattercat, is our managing editor at the Drabblecast, and has a great treasure trove of 100-word stories that he's been writing the past several years over at mirrorshards.org. Hope you enjoy. Stupid alien, stupid ugly alien. Tommy was flailing his bat, the good wooden one he'd begged and begged for last Christmas, and hitting something on the ground. Darlene sighed. Tommy, stop that. You'll ruin your toys. And come in. It's almost dark. Time to wash up and set the table. But mom, I'm killing aliens. You can do that later. Dinner's in ten minutes. March, mister. Tommy groaned and trudged inside, dragging his bat on the ground. Behind him, the crumpled helmet gleamed metallically as one of three slender limbs reached quiveringly upwards, then fell again still and silent. And that leads us to our feature story this week, A Memory of Seafood by Tina Connolly. Tina lives with her family in Portland, Oregon. Her stories have appeared in Lightspeed, Tor.com, Strange Horizons, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Her first fantasy novel, Iron Skin, was nominated for a Nebula, and the sequel, Copperhead, is now out from Tor.com. She narrates for Podcastle and Beneath Ceaseless Skies, runs the Parsec-winning flash fiction podcast, Toasted Cake, and her website is TinaConnolly.com. This story was originally published in a little paper zine called Yogg's Notebook back in 2007. 
The story's read to you by Angela Lee, wife of our esteemed managing editor and featured drabalist this week, Nathan. So without further ado, we bring you A Memory of Seafood by Tina Connolly. A Memory of Seafood by Tina Connolly. This column originally ran in the Emerita Times on the 7th of May, 2250. This week's column is not about a restaurant exactly, but about a memory. A distinct and painful memory, like a softened tooth you can't help but poke at with your tongue to see if it still hurts. A memory of seafood. That sounds like one of those divine collections, doesn't it? Like a flight of starlings or a murder of crows? I remember when I was a mere 17, a slight but fully-breasted slip of a girl. My best girl chums and I used to entertain the governor as he waited for his tea at the old tea house on Front Street. Now you oolong aficionados, you remember it. He affectionately called us a flirtation of jail baits. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. This memory takes place a few years ago in Esplanet on the coast of Wentest. I had taken Vanessa, who, as usual, was not fully appreciative of the delightful tax write-off we were enjoying. It was quite a lark, too. All I had to go on was a note scribbled on the back of a receipt from the now shamefully defunct X's-only restaurant that rested more or less Virgo intacto for a score of years before being replaced with a horrid remaining bookstore that seemed to only sell copies of Tarts and Spotted Dicks, a love affair. As a permanently painful, intrusive reminder to yours truly, I'm afraid. And on the back of this receipt were two words scrawled by my good chum and fabulously anti-establishment chef, Ped Piscalia. Ped had a very hot temper and a cool head for revenge. Once, when a certain starchy CEO questioned the chef's usage of fennel in the raspberry sorbet, Ped arranged to have himself delivered, naked, inside an enormous cake at the middle of the next board meeting, clad in nothing but fennel lingerie. This backfired, <laughs> but I'll save that story for another time. The two words on the receipt were Masa Ulasa. At least, I was pretty sure that's what they were. I invited Vanessa to interpret the scribble, but she refused to try. I told her it was her responsibility to decipher Pedscalia's handwriting, or failing that, to remember what he had said, as Pedscalia and I were only about two shots shy of the bottle of anisette at that point, and I wouldn't have remembered if Vanessa herself had popped naked out of a cake, which she wouldn't have, sadly. I am constantly amazed at the assertion that this younger generation is so much freer and looser than the old. Vanessa is a good decade younger than I when she admits to her age, and is stodgier than a bechamel sauce with too much flour. At any rate, Vanessa would only admit to remembering the place, Esplanet, and when pressed, the coast of Wentest. And when she realized that I was determined we should go, she was sorry she had said that much and tried to backtrack and pretend she didn't remember anything, but I saw through that scheme. It was hopeless, of course, to try to ask Pedscalia to accompany me. After the incident with the fried lizard and the visiting ambassador of lizard-worshipping Mampana Planet, the ambassador had offended Pedscalia in some way, but I forget exactly how. He had been stripped of his official chef's hat and had fallen immediately and hopelessly in love with the nomadic life of the itinerant, illicit chef. If you ever happen to overhear, floating through the swinging doors of the restaurant's kitchen, a high tenor voice with an accent not quite Swedish and not quite Mexican, but some barbarous hybrid of both. And then further, if you should sneak back into the moist, steamy kitchen and see a very tall, very skinny figure with a face as long as a wet Thursday. That's Ped. Ask your waiter to send the chef a complimentary bottle of anisette, and you'll have the dinner of your wildest dreams. 
Two days later, we were on a rickety rub to S planet. It was the off-season, thus the ancient space liner, even older than I, was still two-thirds empty. Vanessa refused to talk to me during the flight, but as it turned out, an old school chum of mine was on the tub as far as Livet's planet, so we caught up on all the scandals of our old circle, and tally of who was cheating on whom and with what. From a literary point of view, the trip was very good. I got one column out of the airliner food alone, Tapas on a Tub, October 7, 2243, and two more from the planet itself, one from the only Michelin-starred restaurant on the entire watery planet, an S-Planet Star, October 10, 2243, and one from the quaint custom S-Planeters have of sprinkling dirt on every meal before they eat it, to bless it, or as I thought. To dirt we returneth, and that right quickly, December 23, 2243. Addendum. In that column, I suggested that it, the quaint custom, had perhaps come from the fact that S-Planet is almost wholly seawater, and therefore even the soil is terribly salty, but that perhaps now that the S-Planeters had been introduced to modern technology, they might find plain salt more to their liking than salty dirt as a seasoning, as it did tend to muddy the flavors, if you'll pardon the expression. It does turn out that I was wrong, and the S-Planeters need something or other they can only get through the soil or through Balta fruits, which are prohibitively expensive and do not taste much different than the surrounding mud. Once on S-Planet, it was a long, sloggy trip to the Wentest coast. We had unfortunately arrived just at the end of the season of the torrential downpours, and several times were forced to take shelter in local banto pods. I should note here that S-Planet has two main and rival species, the banto and the hasa. The banto have the advantage. They are larger and land-dwelling, as far as you can call the mud of S-Planet land. By necessity, they form nuclear family units, as one of the sexes is capable of forming a large pod around its mate and their offspring to shelter the group during the hurricanes. Vanessa and I twice spent a good week sheltering in these pods and paying through the nose for the pleasure. Though were it not for Vanessa's grumbling, I would have rather enjoyed it. The Banto are friendly, ruthless traders and dealers in all things, inveterate gamers who pass the storms sharpening their skills. It was quite pleasant to sit in that translucent warm pink bubble and practice strategy with the jovial Banto. After nearly a month of this slow, wet progression, the sky began to clear, and we made it to the coast with relative ease. Once past the rains, the coast became a resort for the Banto and their smaller sea-dwelling rivals, the Hassa. The Banto came to the shore for fresh fish, the Hassa for fresh game, and a fair amount of trade goes on between both species, more cautiously from the side of the smaller, weaker Hassa. The shore itself was quite pretty in the new sun, the beach sand a sparkling green crystal, the ocean a deep blue-green. I convinced Vanessa to change into her ancient seersucker bathing suit and sunbathe with me, and she started to cheer up once she realized the wet journey across the planet had caused her to lose a good ten pounds. We soaked in the good sun all that first day, until the waterlogged feeling had worn off completely and it felt at peace in the universe. The next morning, we set off briskly in search of an interpreter. We found a friendly Banto, fluent, as his sign proclaimed, in 136 modern languages and four dead ones. I explained that we had come all this way for the rumor of an exquisite meal, the sort to be experienced perhaps once or twice in a lifetime. We had very little to go on, but we knew this taste sensation was to be found here, on the coast of Wentest, and further, we had two words. Here I produced the napkin with Pedscalia's scrawled annotation, Masa Ulasa. Vanessa smirked, anticipating failure. The Banto looked at the napkin thoughtfully. Then he said he knew just the place to try. I admit, I sent a gloating smile of Vanessa's direction. 
The Banto interpreter led us back along the beach and down to a block of modern Banto structures. All Banto structures are relatively recent, mostly dome-shaped and mostly colored pink. We went inside one of these, and the interpreter explained that this Banto restaurant served the best seafood on S Planet, and if anyone could help us, it would be its famous Banto chef. It was the slow part of the afternoon, so he would be able to conference with the chef while we waited in front. We stood near the entrance, watching the few dining Banto looking at us curiously, no doubt surprised to see tourists so soon after the rain. Sensible travelers would not arrive for another couple weeks. At long last, our interpreter returned and explained that the Banto chef would be ecstatic to help us in our quest, but we must come back later that evening, as this was a long dish to prepare, and he would need to make a special trip for ingredients. We were more than happy to oblige, and passed a second relaxing afternoon soaking sun on the green sands and eyeing the undulations of the mounded pink and white Banto domes. Just as the dark fell, we met our interpreter back at the seafood restaurant and were escorted by two obesient Banto to a private human-sized table in the back. A parade of waiters brought us amuse bouches and flights of local wines and an endless stream of local delicacies as if we were visiting dignitaries. We did not touch the ubiquitous shaker of dirt. Alès de piste de raisins, the dish itself, the masse ulasa, was carried to the table by the head waiter and served onto our plates. Can you remember the last time you tried a new dish? Wholly new, not just the last time you recombined a week's worth of leftovers in a futile attempt to make the family excited about eating them again. And if you can, is the memory of a flavor so shocking, so new, so bold, all other dishes pale in comparison? A flavor so clean and pure that every cell of your body seems to have been turned into a vessel to carry this particular sensation and no other? That was this sea creature, and more. It was like oysters, and yet not like. Like lungustine, and not. Like muffinums, and again not. Impossible to describe, it was the distillation of S-Planet itself, briny and soft, redolent of the seaweed and salty air, and even the damp decay that is the heart of so many achingly wonderful foods. I could have eaten this dish forever and never tired of it. Even Vanessa, sourpuss that she is, admitted that our journey was not altogether a waste of time. We called the Banto chef over, and through the cheery interpreter, indicated our pleasure of the meal. I asked if he would graciously consider sharing the recipe for masa ulasa. At this, the interpreter turned to the shade of shell pink that passes for laughter among the Banto, and when he repeated the request to the chef, the chef turned even pinker. He said something to the interpreter, rippling with waves of pink and rose, and the interpreter repeated back, This is masa Ulasa. Yes, I said. Might I have the recipe? The interpreter did not bother to relay this request. This is Masa Ulasa, he repeated. Masa Ulasa was Hasa. He nodded at the Banto chef and turned pinker with his amusement. Masa Ulasa was the rival Hasa. He searched for the word. Vanessa Drylish replied. Chef? Yes, he said. Great joke. You want the recipe for Hasa? And so, I blushed to disclose, we ate the chef. Vanessa roared at the news. I was mortified. The Banto chef was gleeful. Though, given the quality of his asparagus, imported limp, I rather think he should not have been quite so candidly glad about the removal of his rival. As the Hasa are served daily at Banto restaurants around the planet, the loss of one Hasa chef did not create any sort of interplanetary incident. It was left merely to our own consciences to regret the damage we had done. Vanessa refused to accept any part of the blame or let any burden lie too heavily upon her mind. 
Indeed, her spirits were almost obscenely high during the trek back to the port. A trip to the aforementioned one-starred restaurant, which did not include any sentient species in its menu, in accordance with Michelin guidelines, helped to reaffirm my faith in the industry. A donation, once returned home, of a check to the Hasa Liberation Front eased my mind further. And yet, the memory of that dish haunts me yet. Can I almost sympathize with Abanto for their treatment of the Hasa? Is it easier to enslave a sentient race when you know how delicious they are? My conscience says no. But my treacherous palate. Two thoughts stayed with me for more voyage. One, a self-admonition. It will be a long time before I so blithely down half a bottle of anisette. And two, the last haunting question. I wonder what the Hassa chef served Pedscalia. That was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Remember, only a couple more weeks left to vote in the 2013 Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. Our finalists for Best Story this year are Michael Marshall Smith with the story The Man Who Drew Cats, Sarah Pinkster with 20 Ways the Desert Could Kill You, Shannon Garrity with Flying on My Hatred of My Neighbor's Dog, Christine Yant with The Revelation of Morgan Stern, and Bruce McAllister with Hero the Movie. Vote for your favorite by going to our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. There at the top, you'll see the category Drabblecast People's Choice awards. You can also cast a vote for our finalists in the best 100-word Drabble, best Twabble or 100-character story, and best episode cover art of 2013. Represent. And speaking of representing, it's time for the Drabblecast kick-ass donor of the week. (coughs) Stephanie Deaton. Stephanie's a forester by trade, living and working in eastern Texas, who enjoys all things outdoors, such as hiking, skydiving, rock climbing, scuba diving, and wandering around aimlessly identifying plants. Lately, she's been spending her days trying not to overtop her hip waders and failing miserably. Stephanie's been enjoying and spreading the weird of the Drabblecast since some time in 2010. The Drabblecast was especially helpful, she says, last summer in entertaining her co-workers on a two-hour drive to cruise timber in the Wintow Mountains of Utah. Glad we could help, Stephanie. We certainly appreciate your support. You at home, consider donating to the Drabblecast if you have the means. We rely on your donations to pay authors and keep the show going. Go to Drabblecast.org and click on any of the support options there to the side. We greatly appreciate it. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, Kay Billy, with this one here. Midget zombies tore at the doors, their groans filling the bunker. That's the last time I read from the Micronomicon. Think you can write a good story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post in our forums. You might be next week's winner. Follow the Drabblecast for the winners early each week at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Random Marks. Random Marks is equal parts journal, sketchbook, and e-zine. They give you a word or a theme, you interpret it, then they publish everyone's work in a bi-weekly issue. Pretty cool, huh? You can check out past issues at Random Marks 
marks.jux.com. Participation's open to anyone, so if you'd like to stay informed of topics and deadlines, shoot them an email at random.marks.blog at gmail.com. Our program this week was brought to you by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Nikki Drayden, Tom Baker, David Carvin, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you to beware that treacherous palate. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.